This morning, once again, we're coming to the book of 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 17. Our scripture passage is from verses 8 through 16. Reading from the English Standard Version translation. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord, and in the Hebrew, if we translated this perhaps more literally, we would say, As Yahweh, your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me, and afterward make something for yourself and your son. For thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty, until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said, and she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we would ask for the same spirit that inspired your prophets to write your word would now be at work within us as Christians so that our minds would be illuminated, our hearts would be made receptive and our lives, body, and soul would be set apart, sanctified, and conformed to the image of your Son. That as we listen, we would understand. And as we understand, we would trust in you. And in trusting in you, we would walk by faith and not by sight. Father, we pray this because we need from your word that which would feed us. We need from your truth that which would guide us in these very difficult days. And we need from your promises the assurance that you will be with us wherever we go. In Christ's name, amen. Two weeks ago yesterday, uh, Julie and I were in Flagstaff. We were downtown with the family, just sort of walking around and looking at things, and we stepped into a bookstore gift shop. Now, immediately, if any of you have been in these kinds of uh, bookstore gift shops in place like Manitou Springs outside of Colorado Springs, Sedona in Arizona, or Flagstaff, you would characterize it as a New Age gift shop bookstore. And as I walked through the store, Julie made a U-turn and went out very quickly. I walked all the way to the back of the store and had that same oppressive feeling that I've had for the last 40 years every time I have walked into a New Age bookstore. A place of darkness, a place of spiritual darkness, a place where virtually every word, every symbol, 
is Antichrist. Now, uh, because I've had this happen to me so many times, I I don't just slough this off as though I were some Christian materialist to believe that this doesn't happen. Uh, we do know that the principalities, the principalities and powers of darkness are real. And it would make sense that they might uh, associate themselves very closely in places where uh, the anti-truth is being presented. But the thing I really want to say is this, that when young Americans of today begin to feel the need for something spiritual, this is the direction they turn. They turn toward the kinds of stuff that's propagated in a New Age bookstore. And why do they do so? Because it is a spirituality which brings with it no strict rules, no rigorous requirements, no required meetings, and ultimately no authority other than the inner self. And the entire movement in terms of thought points toward self-improvement, self-enlightenment, self-expressiveness. It always carries with us this aura that life is sacred, the planet is sacred. Oneness with the cosmos is that which is going to bring enlightenment and peace of mind. And of course, when we study what modern paganism is all alike, is like, we say that this is the essence, this is the character that we actually see. And we need to remember what is the point of view of modern paganism. Well, first and foremost, if you are a modern pagan, that which you reject as the opposite of where you are spiritually is the biblical view of God and of Christ and of salvation. You worship the world as sacred, but reject the idea of worshiping the God who created the world because that God doesn't exist. And you believe that the greatest freedom that you have from this perspective is that freedom not to have to work, not to have to worship that authoritarian God in the sky. But rather, your deepest freedom is vested in the expressiveness of your most essential identity, your sexual identity, that this is what you are. This is what is sacred. And from 2015 on, we can see that this is the trajectory that increasingly defines America. And it looks like there's little that will stop this trajectory as we go into the future. Now, in, in the big picture, why is this the case? It's because over the last half century, we have clearly moved away from being a Christian into being a post-Christian and a post-modern based culture. And all the indicators are is that we are experiencing a pagan renaissance. And that's why the theme of this series on Elijah and Elisha, the big theme, is that which I've stated this way. Even if paganism has eclipsed the influence of biblical truth, biblical ideas, biblical morality in this Asian culture, that doesn't change our calling as Christians. It, it doesn't change our calling as biblical Christians who are committed to the truth. Which is to say that our calling remains the same. We are to remain faithful to the mission of who we are and what we are called to do. And, and what are we? We are believers. The core of our identity is this. It is our faith in Christ. It is our faith in the unchangeable and infallible gospel about Christ. What are we called to do? We are called by that faith to live in this world, not to escape it, not, not to run away from it. We are called to walk in this world by faith in the living God, trusting in the living God, believing the living God. And, and the character of our conduct is to be, we live in a manner that's worthy of the Lord. In, in every aspect of our lives. 
we are called to bear fruit in every good work. Who we are, what we are, doesn't change. No matter what kinds of changes culture may go through, no matter what kind of convolutions and revolutions may happen, we who are followers of Christ have the same mission and the same identity that we have always had. We are to live in this world in such a way that through our faith in Christ, we demonstrate that the gospel is true and we live in order to do good works in this world. It's pretty much as simple as that. Now, of course, the consequences of that in human history have been profound. Within three centuries, Christians who followed this simple understanding, and by the way, Paul sets this forth in his prayer in Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 14. In that prayer, as Paul prays for the Christians at Colossae, who are being bombarded and infiltrated with the new form of paganism of that day, Gnosticism, incipient Gnosticism, what Paul prays for them remains a constant in terms of our calling, our mission, what God has called us to do, who we are. And by virtue of fulfilling that mission of who they are and what they were to do, bearing fruit in every good works, the Christian subculture overturned the practice of abortion, overturned the practice of infanticide, elevated the status of the poor, took care of the elderly and the infirmed, began to build hospitals that didn't exist and hospice care that wasn't even conceived of in the Greco-Roman world, elevated the role and status of women and laid the foundations as Western culture developed so by that by the Middle Ages, slavery was virtually unknown in Western civilization. That's why I say history has demonstrated that we as Christians, no matter what the culture is like, must remain faithful to who we are and what we have been called to do. Now then, this theme, the series, Elijah and Elisha. What I have been saying in the last few weeks and continue to say for maybe a few more sermons is this. Looking at Elijah is to look at a man of faith, but it is also to look at the God that he believed in. And in the premise here of this passage, as the earlier passage, is this. God does what he does with us, for us, and to us. In order to require of our faith that we believe and trust that God is everything he claims to be on behalf of those he saves. The greatest challenge to our faith is always to believe that God is everything that he claims to be on behalf of those he saves. Now, we see this idea continuing to be at work in the story about Elijah. Now, last week, uh, we finished up uh, those first uh, eight verses or so with an understanding that we were looking at God's future plans for Elijah. And today's message is the very next step, the next immediate step in Elijah's life, the, the immediate fulfillment of what God has promised to do with respect to Elijah. And here, God has taken Elijah from the eastern side of the Jordan River all the way to the Mediterranean Sea, which is on the west coast 
of the Middle Eastern region. The text itself divides easily into three parts, which I have designated this way. The dark place, the unlikely person, and the multiplied provision. And I want to begin with the dark place. The first question that we need to ask ourselves with respect to where God sends Elijah is this. Why did God send him here to the city? To what we can characterize as a very dark place spiritually. Well, think about what we know of Zarephath directly out of the text. In verse 9, we are told that it belongs to Sidon, which is the kingdom of Ethbaal, Jezebel's father. Secondly, it's outside of Israel, which means it's a foreign and Gentile pagan city. Thirdly, it is officially and practically Baal country. Baal is the supreme god. Fourthly, here Elijah will have no, to quote the hymn, fellowship of kindred minds. That is to say, God isn't taking him someplace where there are going to be believers who can encourage him, to comfort him, to uh, support him and strengthen him in his walk and calling before God. There is going to be here no spiritual brotherhood at all. Absence of that kind of fellowship. Now, from that standpoint, fifthly, <laughs> Elijah is no better off here than he was by the brook Kirith. In fact, this is a far more difficult place for Elijah to be spiritually because the shadow of pagan darkness will be tainting all of Elijah's limited world. Sixthly, he's going to continue to be in hiding, but he's going to be hiding in the widow's house. And this is going to be a far more restrictive hiding place than being able to be outside, out of doors, by this brook, uh, surrounded by trees and bushes and mountains and hills and birds and all of that. You know, by the brook, we could say, Elijah was hidden by natural isolation and the solitude of his surroundings. But in contrast, here he's going to be hidden by discretion. His own being careful not to expose himself out in public in the sense of, hey, that's that's the guy everybody's looking for. But also the widow's discretion. She has to be careful that she doesn't expose his existence and hiding accidentally. The point here is that in this place, there is a heightened danger of discovery and capture on the horizontal human level of opportunity, chance, probability, and so forth. Among these people, there is a far greater danger of, of, of Elijah being found and discovered as the drought has intensified, the famine has continued, and King Ahab has put more and more effort into finding out where Elijah happens to be. So why did God do this? Why did God put Elijah in this dark place of greater danger and of a greater challenge in terms of the taint of pagan spirituality? Well, we ought to quickly think, instinctively think, biblically think about the lessons of trust and faith. All that God does with us and for us and to us, he does with respect to our faith. He does everything he does in order to require of our faith, to actually mature our faith and deepen our faith so that we will trust he's everything that he claims to be on behalf of those he saves. So, God has Elijah here in this dark place to keep lessons of faith constantly before him. In 
this regard, even the name of a city is symbolic and meaningful. Zarephath means refining or smelter, as in a furnace for metalworking. And Elijah's faith is refined by the challenges of this dark place. Now, let me point out three, I think, obvious lessons. The first lesson that I think God is reinforcing for Elijah's faith is this. Baal has no real power. God hides Elijah in Baal country. And Baal can't even see or expose Elijah to Ahab. If Elijah were part of our congregation today, Elijah would essentially say something like this. Hey, folks, the prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. Quoting Martin Luther. That is to say, Elijah would recognize that he is actually invisible to Baal. And that's why he should not in any sense be fearful or in any sense actually worry that somehow the God of this country is going to expose him to all of these Sidonians. God is teaching him to trust and believe that because God is the true God, Baal has no real power. A second lesson would be something like this. Elijah can remit, can believe and think and have confidence that as long as God has his mission and his work for him to do, as long as Elijah is missionally employed in the service of his God, his life is invincible. He is actually safe and secure from all real harm, even in this dark place. The third lesson, though, is this. The continued lesson of dependency. Elijah must continue to live by faith. Zarephath is also under the famine. Elijah doesn't have a job currently. He can't go out and become gainfully employed. He needs his daily bread. So he must continue to exercise faith in the character of God. That God is everything he claims to be on behalf of those he saves. Even in dark places. God is fully with Elijah, even in this dark place. I want to encourage us that this is a truth that is vital for each one of us, because really the concept of dark places is one that applies to the Christian pilgrimage in this world. Because there will be many, and for some it seems like far too many, dark places in the journey of the Christian life. But Scripture tells us that in those dark places, as we walk with Christ, God promises to be with us. Listen to what David says in Psalm 139, beginning at verse 7. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed and shield, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning, that is in reference to the east, the rising of the sun, and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, that would be the west, where the sun sets, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. 
If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light around me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. This speaks to our faith in this way. Even in a dark place, no matter where we might find ourselves, the Word of God teaches, God Himself promises, that even there, God's hand shall lead us, and his right hand shall hold us. In every Christian's life, there are places that we can call Zarephath. A dark place where our faith will be tested and refined. We need to know. We need to trust. We need to rest in this truth. God's hand is holding ours in all the places that are dark. So even though the powers of darkness are real, they don't have any ultimate power over us. And your life and my life is actually invincible until our work and our life's work in this world is done. And we are, by God's design, dependent upon Christ. Because apart from him, we can do nothing. Now, secondly, let's consider this unlikely person. How does she fit into what God is doing? Not just in Elijah's life, but what God is doing. Let's begin with what we know of her from the text. First, we're told in verse 10, she's a widow. Now, that means husbandless. That means, in terms of the common understanding of the ancient Near East, and really most of the cultures historically throughout the world, she has no husband, and therefore she has no major provider. Which is to say, the loss of a husband, widowhood, most often means poverty especially if there are no relatives to help. I mean, in the, in the Old Testament, the book of Ruth gives us a vivid window into the kinds of difficulties that a widow could experience. In the New Testament, the book of Acts, chapter 6, bears witness likewise. The early church necess- necessarily had a daily distribution of food for widows because Widows were, in fact, in the ancient world, the most vulnerable people in society, the most vulnerable to poverty. So we have this widow in Zarephath who has no provider, yet she's been ordained by God to provide for Elijah. This is why she is such an unlikely provider. But there's more. She already has a burden of care. She has a son who's young enough and small enough, as we see from verse 19, for Elijah to take him in his arms and carry him up a flight of stairs to Elijah's upper chamber, his lodgings. We'll read about that next time. So here she is having a young child and a widow, which means she's a young widow. So in the midst of this famine, She's a bundle of brokenness. Somewhat recently, the loss of a husband, currently in poverty, with a small son to take care of. Not a likely source of help for someone else in need. And thirdly, when Elijah comes upon her, she's outside the city near the gates, which means that there's nothing left inside of her house that she can possibly use as fuel for fire. Further, she is down to the last little bit of flour. She's down to the last little bit of oil from which she intends to make one last meal because she has nothing else for herself or for her son. One last meal 
before starvation, before death. Fourthly, she's a pagan. And her God has failed. Baal has not come through for the Sidonians. The people of Baal are being failed by Baal. But more than this, she has no claim upon the God of Israel. She's just like the former condition of the Gentile Christians that Paul speaks about in Ephesians chapter 2. In verses 11 and 12 of that chapter, Paul says this to the Ephesians Gentiles who used to be pagans. He says, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And that sums up this unlikely woman. She's destitute. She's desperate. Doubtless depressed. Doubtless demoralized. And without hope. And without God in the world. She is the most unlikely source of help for Elijah. Yet, God does not send Elijah to someone else. He doesn't send Elijah to someone wealthy. He doesn't send Elijah to someone who has more than enough to share. But instead, he sends Elijah to someone who is herself stricken with poverty and nearing the end of her life and the life of her son because of the famine, because like all of these pagans, she is suffering under the judgment of God. Now, in this light, let's think about Elijah's request. First, verses 10 and 11, he asks for water. Elijah says to her, bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. She probably begins to obey this request. Why? We have no textual data that tells us why except that God has already said to Elijah that he has commanded a widow there to provide for him. God has commanded her to provide for Elijah. In this regard, I like the way that the 19th century pastor and author A.T. Pearson describes the agency of God in influencing human action. He speaks of it this way in his biography of George Mueller. Quote, The hand of God touching the springs of human action. What we see here is that in this woman's obedience to what Elijah has said, we have exhibited the sovereign, mysterious Invisible hand of God touching the soul and heart of this poverty-stricken woman so that she chooses to heed Elijah's request. When there were other and perhaps more culturally reasonable ways to respond. She could have ignored Elijah and just gone back into the city. Or she could have argued that it wasn't her duty she could have told him to leave her alone or she was going to yell for the guards, but she doesn't. She responds to Elijah's request for water with obedience to what he asked of her. And by this, by this, the scriptures are showing us two things. What God promises, what God says, God is fully able to do and God does. His word is supreme. God's word is the word of a king. When he commands in this manner, he ensures obedience. But there is a second point here. 
God is working in her. Obedience to the presence of his servant who carries his word. God is beginning this day, the hour of her salvation. Now, in verse 11, we see that Elijah immediately makes a second request. He's asking for bread. Before the widow can fully leave Elijah's presence, he calls out to her, bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. He asks only for a morsel of bread, a tiny amount, because he's fully aware of the famine and the destitution and scarcity of food. But then I want us to consider the very realistic nature of her response. She says back to Elijah, verse 12, as Yahweh, your God, lives. Now, that's a common introduction to to an oath. But in this oath, the widow recognizes Elijah as an Israelite. And she takes this oath according to Yahweh as the God of Israel. Don't you see something strange here? Don't you see something and perhaps several things that are unexpected? Look at it from this perspective. After all of Ahab's work, to make Israel a Baal-worshipping and Baal-centered nation, this Sidonian pagan woman yet recognizes Yahweh, not Baal, is the true God of Israel. She affirms Yahweh as Elijah's God, not Baal. She affirms Elijah as Yahweh's servant, as Yahweh, your God, lives. Now, what she is swearing is the fact that she cannot fulfill his second request. And the reasons she gives describe the pathetic conditions of her extreme poverty. There, There is no baked bread. There's only a handful of flour, only a little oil in a jug, just barely enough One last meal. She intends to eat and then die. If you read this passage and you think deeply about what's happening here, It's as though every hopeless story you might ever have read that makes you feel the deepest woe of someone who's going to going to die but die holding her son. It 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 pulls you in to the desperation and the demoralizing nature of what this widow is going through. And so the next words we read are Elijah's response, which gives her God's promise and God's certain hope. For the prophet says, do not fear. Go and do as you have said. But first make me a little cake and bring it to me. And afterward, make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. The jar of flour shall not be spent. And a jug of oil shall not be empty 
until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. Several things we should think about. The New Testament would encourage us to see this unlikely person as a kind of typical example of God's saving kinds of work in human beings. She is an example of the weak and foolish things that God chooses in order to confound the wise. Because in in terms of human wisdom, she would never be the first person you would go to to ask, hey, we, we've got a missionary here who's who's on a journey and we need some help. Can you donate something? Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 26 to 29 to the Corinthians, for consider your calling. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. We need to remember God has chosen the weak and foolish things of the world, not the powerful and the rich, to confound the worldly wise. But this unlikely widow is also an example of the sovereign grace of God that comes to those who are strangers and outside of the promises of God. Professor Dale Davis, Reformed Theological Seminary, and his commentary has described it this way. He says, we know her address, meaning we know the widow lives in Zarephath, but not her name. And yet this nameless widow joins the likes of Melchizedek, Jethro, Rahab, Ruth, Naaman, and Ebimelech as one of those standing within the circle of Yahweh's grace. Long before the glad day when Peter preached Jesus in the house of Cornelius and the Holy Spirit fell upon the riffraff. What happens in the street and house in Zarephath in 1 Kings 17 is but a foregleam of that day when God would grant even to the Gentiles repentance that leads to life. God not only chooses the weak and foolish things to confound the wise, but he chooses unlikely persons to bring to salvation. But thirdly, our chief observation should be about God. God cares about this woman. She's a pagan. She's a a Baal-worshipping woman. But God has pity. She's a broken-hearted widow. With a son, she's going to watch die. She is a nobody. But not so to the Lord Jesus. He mentions her, Luke chapter 4, when he visits his hometown in Nazareth. And he does so, and it irritates them. It angers them. They want to kill him for it. But he does so to tell them that God's grace is far beyond the confines of Israel. God's grace will even bypass those in Israel who have rejected him. God's grace reaches those who are of God's fold even outside the confines of Israel. Because God sent his son into this world, not simply to seek and to save those 
who are of the household of Israel, but to seek and to save those who are lost. Brothers and sisters, it ought to remind us whom God will save is unpredictable and whom God will use is unpredictable. And our judgment about these things must never be in accordance with worldly standards. But we must believe that God is so willing to do his work among the weak and the foolish of the world because it is God's intention to confound the wise. Now finally, and fairly briefly, verses 15 and 16, the multiplied provision. And we read that, and she went and did as Elijah said, and she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. She responds, she does what she's told to do. And this indicates the incipient but growing faith in her. Because faith rests upon the promises of God. Faith acts upon the promises of God. And the lesson, once again, is this, with respect to God's provision. God can take a little and make much. God can take what is meager and he can make so much more because God himself is the source and God is the supply. Now, yes, God is doing this in an extraordinary way. But again, let's recognize that even though God is creating more from what is, that just tells us all the more that what God can do in an extraordinary way, God can do in ordinary ways. Which is to say, when the supplies are low, God can extend the reach of our supplies. But we also see here that God's supply comes day by day. His mercies are new every morning. You know, the song of faith is, Great is thy faithfulness, morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. And all of this is consistent with Jesus teaching us that each day we pray, give us this day our daily bread. Never give us today our full inheritance. Give us today everything we're going to need for the rest of our lives because we have a great bank that can store it up. We have a great storehouse on the lower 40. <laughs> Give us all now what we can have. Because God knows that should that happen, we would cease to live by faith. We would trust in the gift and not in the giver. We would trust in the storehouse, not in the one who fills it. But like Elijah, like this widow, faith must rest on the promises of God. And every one of us, as we continue our Christian lives, face questions and issues with respect to our needs and God's provision and God's promises. Are we Trusting him. You have one great inducement to cast all your cares upon the Lord. One great inducement to believe that he will sustain you. And that is God's greatest promise. For although the wages of, of sin is death, the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. For there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For God has demonstrated his own love for us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. 
And it is this same Jesus who calls us to himself to trust and to rest in him. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. No matter how great our needs might be, God can take what is little and create what is fully sufficient. And God provides day by day so that we would ask day by day. So that day by day, we would live in dependence upon him. God takes Elijah to a dark place to be helped by the most unlikely person who is herself brought into the circle of God's saving grace so that both are taken care of by God's multiplied provision, which is according to his mercies which are new every day. Because God does what he does with us, for us, and to us. To require of our faith that we would believe and trust that he is everything that he claims to be on behalf of those he saves. Amen. Let's pray. Father, give us, give us faith that because you have given us the Lord Jesus Christ, how will you not also freely give us all things? To know that if you are for us, what can be against us? To know that you are the God who causes all things to work together for the good of those who love you, to those who are called according to your purposes, to know that nothing in all creation can ever separate us from your love for us, which is in Christ Jesus, to know that we are to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness, All these things shall be added to us. To know all of your promises are yes and amen in Christ. Oh, Lord, we believe. Lord, help our unbelief. In Jesus' name, amen.